We are in Ruth, uh, this amazing little book, this little short um, story. Um, near the front of your Bible, probably the front, front, front quarter of your Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you're going to get Joshua, and then Judges, and then Ruth. It's just two pages, two and a half pages uh, in your Bible, probably. Uh, and it's this amazing, it's amazing, amazing story. It's beautiful. So let me catch us up. We're, we're going to be Ruth 3 today, but we've done 1 and 2 already. So let's just kind of make sure that we're all on the same page uh, and caught up to what's going on in this beautiful story. It's happening against the backdrop of the Judges, the book that happened uh, just before it. It says, hey, in the time, it, the book starts out this way, in the time of the Judges, which is a hint that it's against the backdrop of these huge national stories of great tragedy and war and heroes that are being raised up to deliver and and, and bring God's people back to the land. It's a story of disobedience and rebellion and repentance. Huge, huge stories. Big, like, you know, Samson is in Judges, right? If you know the story of Samson, that's in Judges, you know? And uh, against that backdrop, uh, we hear this story uh, of ordinary people (laughs) living ordinary lives, dealing with ordinary things, loss and blessing and tragedy and triumph. And it's just the story of this. There's only very few characters in this whole thing. Uh, So in Act 1, because it's kind of set up like a play, Act 1, Chapter 1 is basically just Act 1 in a play. And in there, we see this famine happened. And so it causes this family to, a guy named Elimelech takes his family, his wife, um, Naomi and their two sons, and they leave because of the famine in Israel. They live in Bethlehem, ironically, which means house of food, right? House of bread. So, but because of famine, they, they leave and they go to Moab, which is on the other side of the Red Sea. They travel over there, uh, a very fertile part of the world, and they are looking to make lives there. They're immigrants, and they're there for a long, a long while, and Elimelech dies. And so Naomi's left with her two sons. And then her two sons take wives from the Moabite women, and then her sons die. And so it's just Naomi and Ruth and another daughter-in-law named Orpah. So she, uh, Naomi decides, hey, listen, you know what? There's nothing left for me here anymore. I've heard that God has visited uh, my homeland. We should go back there. And so he, she starts headed back, heading back. And on the way back to Bethlehem, uh, she looks at her two daughter-in-laws and like, hey, you know what? You need to go back. Go back to Moab. Don't, like, go back to your house of your, 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 that you came from. Uh, I, there's nothing for you where I'm going. I'm old. I can't, I can't do anything. The life of a widow in the Middle East at this time was a hopeless life. And you have three widows traveling together. Two of them would be foreigners in Israel. She was a foreigner, and Naomi was a former, uh, sorry, an immigrant in Moab. So she's just like, hey, you know what? It's going to be a rough life. There's, I can't offer you anything where you're going. Moabites probably would not have been seen favorably in Israel. So she begs them to go back. Uh, Orpah finally says, yeah, I'll, I'll go back. But Ruth says, no way. And, and it's not just because she's just this great person and kind, because she says this in this beautiful moment in chapter, in act one, she says, where you go, I'll go, right? So that's, that's nice, right? That she's going to be dedicated. But it's not just that she's dedicated to Naomi. This is important. It's that she's dedicated to the God of Naomi, because she says to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. After you die, she's a lot older. After you die, I'm staying. Your people are my people now, and your God is my God. And then she calls down this curse using the, the divine name, Yahweh. She says, may God do so and even more to me if I break this vow. And so she ties her name to the, herself to this name of this God. And so they get to uh, the end of Act 1. You get to the end of 1. They've ba- arrived back in Bethlehem. 
And Naomi uh, shows up, and people, it's been a decade since she's seen these people, and the, the women of the town come out, and they, say, they see her, and they go, can this possibly be Naomi after all these years? We, you know, you didn't, they didn't know if we're dead or alive, and they see Naomi, and she, they say, listen, Naomi says to them, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore, because Naomi means beautiful or sweet. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. It's brutal ending to Act 1. But there's this little hint of hope at the end of Act 1 where it says, they arrived at the time of the barley harvest. Okay, interesting. That's good, right? So there's now uh, bread back in the house of bread. Act 2, what we looked at last week, we introduced to a new character in the story, this, this, this cat named Boaz. Uh, and Boaz, is just, it's, you know, it says he's a righteous dude. That's what it says. Uh, well, I'm, not exactly, but he says he's, uh, he's a, a worthy man. That's the word. Uh, he's a worthy man, a man of great prominence and character. So you're introduced to this guy, and so uh, Ruth, this young uh, widow, this Moabite woman, says, hey, listen, Naomi, like, we got to eat. I'm going to go out into the fields, and I'm going to glean, uh, which in Israel was a tradition. I don't know if Ruth, we don't know if Ruth knew about it or not. Maybe Naomi told her about it, but look, I'm going to go out as they're harvesting the fields, and I'm just going to follow behind, and this was a, a, a right you had as a poor person in Israel. Now, you could go follow behind, and anything that anybody dropped, legally, they couldn't pick up. <laughs> that was for the poor and the widow. Not only that, you weren't supposed to like take every single square inch. You had to leave some for the poor. You had to leave the corners is what the law said. And so I'm going to go out. Maybe I'll find favor, and maybe somebody will be nice to me and let me glean. And, and Naomi says, yeah, go. So she goes out into the field, and she happens, the, it says, happens into this field of this man named Boaz. And uh, Boaz is just exceedingly kind to her. Uh, he arrives on the scene and says, who is that? And they said, that is Ruth. She's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. And Boaz says, hey, calls her over, says, listen, I've heard what you did. For, I've heard your, of your, your loyal love to your mother-in-law. So stay here. Don't go anywhere else. Stay in this land. We'll make sure that you're taken care of. And she's just humbled, falls on the ground and says, why have I found favor in your eyes? And he's like, Stay here at lunchtime, provides water and food for her. And then in the evening, and then he goes to his, his men that are working and they're like, hey, uh, drop a little bit extra for her. When she's falling behind you, drop a little extra. And so she has even more. So at the end of the day, she has so much food. Best we can guess, the, the conservative estimates from the people who study such uh, things, the Bible nerds, uh, at least two weeks of food that she collects in this one day. Unheard of, right? Like she shows back, back at home, uh, goes back to home and says, look, I have all this stuff. And, uh, and Naomi's like, where did you go? Like what in the world? And she's like, I've wandered into this guy named Boaz's field. And she's like, oh, this is great news. We, I know that cat. And she's like, you should definitely stay there because if you go anywhere else, it could be dangerous. So stay there with him. And that's where scene two, act, sorry, act two ends. Today we'll be in act three, which mirrors act two. Act two starts wherever Naomi and Ruth are residing and they're having this conversation. They're planning what's going to happen. They're going to go out and, and glean for food in, in act two. And then they go out into the field where Boaz is. And then there's this debrief back at home. And our brilliant storyteller mirrors that in act three. Act three, they're having this conversation at, the, at, at, at wherever they're residing. And then she goes out into the field where Boaz is. And then there's the debrief back at home. It happens again. Ready? All right, let's do it. Act three. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? 
See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man who was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, which, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you have asked, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, Good. Let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before uh, one could recognize another. And she said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He said, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley, put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is a good story. This is a real good story. All right, so, uh, all right, we got to deal with some weirdness, right? So, um, yeah, so there's some weird things happening in this that we just got to kind of walk through. Um, it starts out Naomi being this, mate, uh, this matchmaker and Ruth's being obedient. Uh, and then this weird scene, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, and then this debriefing back at home. So the plan is this. Naomi decides that she is going to provide, she sees a path forward to being able to provide a future for Ruth. Uh, I think that maybe we think of this in 2023 as, uh, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's old school way of thinking. And yeah, look, they had their priorities back then, the way things worked, and we have our ways now. They probably hadn't seen the notebook as many times as we have. You know, like there's these romantic notions of like, oh, but does she love him? Nobody cared back then. Like that wasn't really a thing, right? Like, you know, because that goes away anyway, right? You know, it's replaced by something much further and deeper, which is this devotion and loyal love to others, each other, right? Anyway, uh, they're less concerned about butterflies than, than, than uh, we are. And so, so uh, Naomi says, like, th- there's actually a future hope for you here. So she says that she's going to do this and says, look, here's the deal. Um, Boaz is a, calls him a relative. Uh, it's kind of come up before. Uh, there's actually a technical word here called... Um, kinsman redeemer is kind of the way that we talk about it in English a lot of times. He's a kinsman redeemer. Uh, so there's this thing in Israel. Uh, it's actually laid out in, in the Old Testament uh, in, in several places in, in the law, uh, a couple places that uh, 
it was a family guardian, kind of, right? So if somebody got themselves in trouble, right? If a, a family member uh, had to sell a piece of property, it, you could take a to, to somebody outside of the family. Then if you had a kinsman redeemer, they had a legal right to purchase that property so it stayed in the family, right? Family line was a huge deal for them. And land was a huge deal, right? It makes sense. We don't think about that much, right? But like, for example, we, we kind of uh, maybe... Um, uh, bristle at the idea that the oldest son uh, was the one who got the inheritance. But the idea was if we split the inheritance among everybody, then our land gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So it would be the oldest son's responsibility to keep the land together and then provide for everybody from the land. Yeah? It's easy for me to say I'm the oldest son. Yeah. I should get everything. I've earned it. Anyway, so they cared about the land because it was important that you be able to provide. They cared about the land because it was a gift from God. It wasn't just a thing. So the law provided for the opportunity, not only just to redeem land, but you could redeem somebody. If somebody became so poor that they had to sell themselves into service to somebody else, sell them into slavery, the kinsman redeemer had a legal right to come and purchase that person back so they would not belong to somebody else but would be part of the family and part of the clan. The kinsman redeemer had, they could even avenge murder, right? Uh, it was laid out in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and several other places, uh, numbers I think even, no, no, Leviticus 25. So they were laid out to these plans for this person to be kind of a family protector and a family guardian to protect the family's interests. So that's who Boaz is. He's one of these people who can protect the family interests, And so she has this plan. Now, there's a bunch of stuff that we don't know that's weird that goes on here. It's customs that have been lost to history that we just, we don't know. We don't have any other examples of some of the things that happen in here exactly like this. For example, that weird part about uncovering the feet, right? What's that about? We don't know. Like, there's, we don't have other examples of that in scripture of like, you know, like, aha, I see your feet, now we're married. Like, I don't know, that wasn't, I don't know. We don't have examples of how, what was going on there exactly, uh, but apparently they did. And so also this whole like stretch your garment over me, your wing over me, what is like what? Like that's a weird thing to say, right? To somebody. Uh, but uh, so we don't know exactly, because he understood, right? He understood what she was saying. Um, the closest we have to that is actually... Um, uh, there's a reference to God being protector. So uh, in Ezekiel 16, it says, when I passed, this is God talking about Israel as a nation. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So this is an image later, usually later on, uh, of God providing and protecting in his marriage-like covenant to Israel. So there's something going on with that image there that we're just not really 100% sure exactly what was going on. There's also something happening in here about this weird rule uh, of leveret marriage. Because not only did you care about the land, you cared about the descendants, right? You didn't want families to disappear. And so uh, there's actually a a, a rule uh, that's responsibility if a woman uh, was widowed. It was the responsibility of the brother-in-law to marry and care and protect for her and have a child. And the first child would actually count as the deceased husband's child so that that line would continue. That's actually in the Bible. It's a weird rule. Now, 
That's not what's happening here because he's not the brother, but there's something like that apparently because he looks at her and says, like, this is amazing. Like, he talks about her loyalty, not just to Naomi, but to the dead that have gone before her, that she is looking out to care not just for Naomi, but even to make sure her, her deceased husband doesn't lose his life. So some idea there, but we don't have any other examples of that going on. So there's this weird set of customs we don't understand. Uh, we do know a little bit about the spread of the wings, this image, the symbolic gesture. Um, she basically proposes marriage, right? She's proposing marriage to him in the middle of the night. Um, and when Boaz met her, what's so fascinating about that is when Boaz met her, um, he had heard all that uh, she had done for Naomi and, and he prays a blessing over her when he first meets her in the field. And he says uh, that, I pray that God blesses you, that Yahweh blesses you because you have come to take refuge underneath his wing. And she is basically saying in this moment, um, in you marrying me, and spreading your wing over me, you were letting God use you to answer the prayer that you prayed. Yeah? That God will bless and protect me through you. Right? It was this beautiful, beautiful moment. So we, we do kind of understand that. And, and ultimately what this is is a, is a marriage proposal. Uh, apparently it's a culturally appropriate way. Bec- we know this because of Boaz's response. Boaz's response isn't like, what are you, crazy? Like, he's like, yeah, like what you've done is noble and good. Right? He's impressed with what she's done. But can we just acknowledge that the situation is a little weird? Right? I mean, the plan, I don't know, man, at best, touch and go, right? Like, you're just like, ah, I don't know about this, right? Like, uh, how is this going to possibly be? See, Naomi sees this chance, right? Because she said on the way back, she says, listen, I, I can't provide a husband for you. Even if I had kids right now, I couldn't get a husband for you. <laughs> like, there's, what, what are you going to do? If there's no hope for you. And Rose like, I'm going anyway. She's like, there's no husbands for you back there. I'll go back and I pray that God will bless you with a husband. She had no concept that God might provide for a husband for Ruth in Israel. But here's, she sees possibly a way. And so she prays and she begins to plan. And her plan, I gotta be honest, I don't know if it's a good plan or a bad plan. It doesn't seem to really be, really be the point. My instinct is, well, this is not a good idea at all, right? Like you read this story and you're like, oh, I, it seems crazy because well, look, it's a dangerous plan, right? So when she first went out to glean and she landed in, Ruth, landed in Boaz's uh, field, Boaz said, hey, listen, stay close to my guys. Don't go anywhere else. We'll protect you, right? Not only that, like when she gets back home, uh, Naomi tells her, hey, listen, don't go anywhere else because you might get assaulted. In a time when anybody did whatever they wanted, the time of the judges, it's a dangerous thing to be an immigrant widow in Israel, or to be an immigrant, immigrant widow anywhere. It's a dangerous, dangerous time. If it's dangerous in the middle of the day, it's not better at night. She's asking her to do a dangerous, dangerous thing. And not only that, um, it, um, it puts... Boaz in a, uh, it's going to put him in a rough spot, yeah? Like, not only are you putting him on the spot proposing marriage in the middle of the night, but I mean, like, it's not a good look. You know what I mean? I mean, imagine the situation, like, you know? 
Somebody kicks the door open all of a sudden, you wake you up in the middle of the night, you're like, ah, ah, and they're like, what's going on? You're like, I don't know. Ah, there's a woman down here at my feet. They're like, Where? I don't know. She just showed up here. Nobody believes that story. Nobody believes you. I don't know. I laid down. I had a couple drinks. I laid down and there's this woman here. Like, nobody believes that. What's up with your skirt up over your knees, Boaz? Like, it's in a weird spot, right? It puts her in a compromising spot. Not only is it dangerous, but it's, if it's a bad look for Boaz, it's a bad look for her. Yeah? I mean, you know this, right? Because Boaz says, hey, listen, before it gets light, you need to get out of here. Like, go on. He's care, he cares about her, her, her reputation. And he says, go leave now before anybody else really can recognize you. And he sends her back. So this is, it's, it's this crazy scene in this crazy situation. Um, I mean, can you imagine if you're in high school and your mom's like, hey, here's what I need you to do. In the middle of the night, I want you to go out there. I want you to find this dude, take his shoes off and do whatever he says. That's a weird thing to say out loud. So it's just like, I don't know if it was a good idea or a bad idea. It doesn't seem to be the point. The point seems to be what God does. Not only that, the point seems to be who these people are. Who Boaz and Ruth are seems to be the point, right? Because they're in this situation, and what really comes through is their character, right? He's been called a worthy man, and he looks at her and says, you are a worthy woman in this moment. And, 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 and because, look, your character is... I mean, what do you want to be, right? You know what I mean? Like, what do you want to be, right? They say, um, your character is really revealed, right? Who you are at your core, what you value, is revealed in times of trial and temptation, right? I mean, that's when your character comes through, isn't it? That's when we see who we are. We've already uh, heard in the story um, that Boaz is a man, a noble man, right? He is obedient to the Torah, right? He's supposed to let people glean in his field. He's a landowner. That's his job. So not only does he let people glean in his field, but he is exceedingly generous. Not only does he follow the letter of the law, but he understands the heart of the law to provide for those in need. He is a worthy man. He is generous. And in this scene, we see him be exceedingly honorable. He doesn't take advantage of the situation at all. Ruth, right? We see Ruth's character. Not only has she come back with Naomi, uh, not, only, uh, has she, not only has she cared for Naomi and gone out and gleaned, but when she does this, uh, Boaz believes that, he, he seems shocked by the situation. Like he's surprised that this could even have come about because he's like, you could have gone after younger men that are rich, <laughs> But what you've done in this is even greater than what you did before because you could have pursued your own passions and your own desires, but you cared about Naomi and securing her future and the future of your deceased husband's line even more than what you wanted. That is loyal love. And he's impressed by this. We see her character come through in these times of temptation and trial, right? This is where character comes from. It is this strength and the depth of the, sorry, your strength, the strength and the depth and the quality of our character comes out in times of trial and in times of temptation. There is a book that you were supposed to probably read in high school. You probably didn't if you were like me. Uh, you got the cliff notes, 
Those were, you should be smaller books that you would get, and now you don't have to do that anymore. Uh, but there's this book uh, written by Charlotte Bronte called Jane Eyre. Not one of my favorite books, but one of my favorite quotes of all times. I went back and read them in college. Turns out they were pretty good. Uh, all of them were pretty good that, that I was supposed to read. I'm supposed to read Jane Eyre. Read it in college. And uh, it may, you know what, the whole thing may be trash, but I might be colored by this one section. So Jane has, in this moment of temptation with this man who is married, but in a compromised situation, his wife is, his wife is ill. And anyway, so there's this moment of temptation where she really desires. Every fiber of her being is saying, give in to his proposal. Give in to what he's asking. He deserves it, and you deserve it. And this is what she says. This is what it says. Still, indomitable was the reply in her own head. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by men. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor, stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If all my individual convenience, sorry, if at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? This moment of great temptation, every five of her being is telling her to do one thing, and she says, you know what, when I was sane, when I was sane, when I was in my right mind, I believed this, and in this moment of madness, I will continue to operate out of that instead of what I feel. Whoa, what, what an amazing, amazing way. That is character. Coming through in a moment of temptation and trial. So here's the thing. The Bible is not, I think one of the great dangers we can do, with, to, uh, one of the great violences we can do to Scripture is make it a moral list of commands that we just have to figure out how to follow Hear me, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our character, who we are at our core, is shaped. And their character, Boaz and Ruth's character, was shaped by what they believed to be true. Our character is shaped by what we have faith in. Who we are becoming is dependent on what we believe. Here's what I mean. If you believe above all other things that your own comfort is the most important thing in the world, then in moments of trial and temptation, that will define how you act. If it's the most important thing to you, if every day you get up and you're like, you know what I'm going to do today? Pursue my own comfort and pleasure. And you go out and you attempt to do that in moments of trial and temptation, that is what will dictate how you behave. And let me tell you from experience, that does not go great. It leads dark places. If you believe the most important thing is what people think about you in moments of trial and temptation, that is what will dictate how you act. I'm going to tell you an old story I've told many times before, but it's been a while since I told it. And you know what? If you've heard it before, I don't care. I enjoy telling it. I was starting high school and, uh, we had, it's about this time of year. Well, no. Back then, we were out of school June, July, and August, like God intended, anyway. Um, so it was probably later in August, you know. Going back to school, beginning of August. What a, anyway, so uh, uh, 
about to school, and, and we had this thing. We would come from, uh, we, we, we'd come up here, and my grandmother would take us shopping. She would buy us school clothes. That's just, my grandmother did that. She bought us school clothes. Um, but there was a ritual. You couldn't just walk in and go, I want that, 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 and that. That was not allowed, right? Like, you had to suffer through some things to get that one shirt that you wanted, right? And what you had to suffer through was uh, the whole dressing room and out parade. You would, they would hand you things, they would take the things that you had picked out and they would put them back where you got them from and hand you different things and send you back in. Yeah, they would take the things that fit and give you things that would fit in three years, right? And so they would send you into the, the, uh, the dressing room and you would come out and you would have to stand there and my grandmother would like pull and prod. She would get down on her knees. She would check the length. She would grab you by the crotch and just shake the pants to make sure there's enough room, right? I remember distinctly, I'm in high school, my grandmother doing this whole routine, and about that time, like all, I, I don't know exactly who it was, but they were from my school, probably, I, I, in my head now, when I tell the story, they were the cheerleading squad, and they just like passing right by, and they all stop, and together did a routine of pointing and laughing, ha, 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 as I was being humiliated in the middle of Parisians. And I thought oh, I died. Right? Because the most important thing to me was what they thought about me. And that would go on in high school, by the way, to dictate how I acted most of the time. It did not go great. Uh, the Bible is not a list of moral commands to get you into heaven. It is the great story of a redeemer who came and purchased us back when no matter what we did, we could never ever live up. It is the story of how God loved us so much he came and rescued us. It is not a list of moral commands or resume that I have to fill out. It is the exact opposite. Instead of a list of resume that I have to fill out, it is a a complete and total through faith in Jesus, him saying, listen, you have to burn your resume, here's mine. It's not a list of moral commands that I have to somehow make my way up to. That is a terrible way to live, by the way. But if you have faith in this Jesus, if you believe he is the son of God, that eternal life flows out of him, that all of these things that I've been seeking life in, in people's affection, in people's attention, in all these places that I look for affection, in all these places that I look for life, and they slowly over time reveal that they only will use me up, and instead I put my faith in Jesus, that, it, that the life that I'm looking for flows out of him into me, and that I have this life and live out of this. If you believe that, you're not required to live up some, moral, to some list of moral commands, but your character will change. Right? I mean, it has to, right? I mean, if the moment of crisis, if I really believe that I don't know what's best for me, but he does, that affects how I act. If in a moment of great shame when I have failed again for the 100th time in a row, if what I believe is that by faith in him I have eternal life, it affects what I do. I do not run away from him, but I run to him. It is what we believe that shapes our character. Boaz and Ruth believe that God is is providentially guiding all of history, not just on a macro scale, but in their lives as well and through their lives. That is what God is doing. And we can't see it when we're just getting up and trying to get food today. And we're just trying to heal relationships. And we're just trying to make it through. We can't see it sometimes. The story of Ruth is that God is working through all of those things to bring about his will. His providential good will for his people. Faith 
believing that that is true, in moments of trial and temptation, that is what will carry you through. And this is practiced. (laughs) One of the reasons that we come here every single week is because for the other six days out of the week, six and a half days of the week, it is a whole lot of work. It's a whole lot of work to convince myself that I need quiet and stillness. It's a whole lot of work to convince myself that if I just didn't have Lexus and a chicken McNuggets that I'd be happy, right? Because that's what I'm told all day long. If you just had this, you'd be happy. If you just, and it's just really easy to believe. Like, you know what? I could use some chicken nuggets right now. Just pushed constantly to believe that the way to have real life is within my own grasp if I just could go get it. I come here and I sing these songs and I hear you see these songs and I confess these realities and I think about what Christ has done on the cross and this truth just resets me and helps shape me. It is practice. It also takes place inside of a community, right? This hope of restoration that Naomi begins to sense. She's like, oh my, oh my. At the beginning of three, you, you can hear the oh my if she was Southern, you know, right? Oh dear. This is it. This is the path. Like, like, I think God's providing. And you can see the hope and the excitement. You can hear the hope and the excitement in the way the story's told. God is providing in a way that we couldn't have even dreamed by his people. Look, his church, what, what God has created, what, what, you know, the whole like, last part of John is just this love letter of Jesus to his church uh, instructing us. We... There's this crazy verse where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey, listen, uh, the way that people are going to know about me is by how you guys love each other. By the way that you forgive one another, by the way that you prioritize, by the way that you pursue what you pursue and how you love, that's how people are going to know about me. You have to go out in this world and do the upside down backwards thing and forgive people who don't deserve it. You have to go out and do the backwards, upside down thing of loving people when they don't love you back. It doesn't make any sense, though. How could that be the way up? And then he goes and dies on a cross and shows us, right? Like That he thinks about things, he sees things as they are so differently than we are. We think that we know how to pursue our own welfare and goodness, and it comes out in our character. But when we pursue Christ and him and what he has done and when we believe that and we, and we put our trust in that, it comes out in a whole new way. It comes out in loving people who don't deserve it when it's hard. Forgiving and asking forgiveness when it's embarrassing. What they believed in is that they could come and rest in the God of Israel And we see that most fully in Christ. It is the work of the church to do this in community, to to bring hope into each other's lives, right? (laughs) To see the hope of a future when we are down and out and nothing else seems possible. God answers Naomi's prayer that, that Ruth would find a husband through Naomi's initiative. And she, God answers Boaz's prayer that, that Ruth would be blessed and find protection in God through Boaz. And so often God will answer our prayers for protection and provision and love and growth and affection through his church and through us. And here's what we do. We go about being faithful, 
resting and trusting in God's providential care for us, no matter what it looks like. The thing that we say here often, it is not your circumstances that reveal how loved you are. It's the cross. So often we look at our circumstances and go, things aren't looking good. Everything is hard and everything is bad. And our instinct is to believe that we're not loved, that we're not cared for, that there's got to be a better way. I just got to find the right technique. That is not the case. It is the cross that reveals to you how deeply loved you are and the way forward. The way up is the way down, laying down our lives as Christ did, setting aside what we could have for ourselves to love others is the way the gospel will go forward in our thinking, in our hearts, in this church, and in our families, and in the world. It's unbelievable how he worked his providential plan to bring all of creation to restoration through dummies like me and you. I didn't mean that offensively, but you understand what I'm saying. I love you all. He works through us to bring about his plan. It's what he does. When we give ourselves to worship, when we give ourselves to practicing what is true and what is real and reminding us constantly that our instincts are so often wrong and letting instead the reality of a God who pursued us in love dictate how we love and live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Give us courage to decide what it is that we believe. Give us courage to commit to practicing these things. I mean, the truth is, like, I don't have to work very hard to practice pursuing my own comfort and pleasure. That comes naturally to me. But change us and shape us. Give us a new life and a new heart that desires new things as we confess and we repent as we remember what's been done for us, as we, as we remember what's been accomplished on our behalf, as we just fall so in love with you that the love of Jesus just spills out of us into those around us. Give us the courage and strength to live out of that truth, to fight the lies that say we have to earn and instead rest, rest, trust in your guiding provision in our lives, not just when it's good, but when it's hard, when it looks dark and we don't understand, to know that you are working for our eternal glory as we are bound to Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.